This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. As Keizan Zenji says in his Points to Keep in Mind for Zazen, the Zazen Yojinki. Zazen means to clarify the mind ground and dwell comfortably in your true nature. This is revealing your true self and manifesting the original ground. Zazen is dropping off body and mind. The original ground the basis of mind is settled and smooth ground always clear and open All experiences arise and cease from this ground and recede back into this ground. And though these experiences may be pleasant and unpleasant, disturbing or undisturbing, the ground is always undisturbed. And as Kazan says, Zazen is directly entering into the ocean of Buddha nature. This ground is our true nature, Buddha nature, and it's always okay. Even when we people are not okay. The ground of our very mind is okay. So this is why the ancestors have encouraged us to clarify the mind ground. And some of you may have heard uh, uh, practice I like to um, employ the simple method of during zazen of uh, whatever's happening, asking, am I aware? And when we ask the question, the, the attention um, releases a little bit of its grip on the um, objects of experience on the sights, the sounds, the bodily sensations, and especially the thoughts. All day long the mind is, the attention is gripping these thoughts and trying to work them out. And then we can ask, am I aware? And that attention 
that's holding the thought releases its grip a little bit and we look back to the mind ground and see there is already present right now a uh, basic ordinary knowing presence the ground of mind It's always peaceful, even when uh, the person is not. The person may have to sit in the midst of tree shredding, grinding stuff up with um, powerful equipment. Yeah! But the mind ground is peacefully at rest. Nothing's being shredded, nothing's being grown. It's just, it's just aware of all sounds, aware of all sights, without any particular discrimination. How wonderful that it's available at any moment. How do we find it? It's not an object to find, but uh, as soon as we ask, am I aware? And verify the presence of awareness, we're, we've returned to the mind ground. So those who... Um, who weren't here this morning, it, we just uh, went over a kind of overview of the life of Keizan Zenji and <coughs> the history of this text and so on. So now we actually begin Denkoe Sishin. With the story of the seventh ancestor Vasumitra. Whose name in Sanskrit might mean something like um, friend of the bright ones. This, so we hear the story now from the Chinese records that Kazan will quote and then Kazan will offer his commentary. The seventh ancestor was Venerable Vasumitra. He placed a wine vessel before Venerable Michaka, who is the sixth ancestor. He placed a wine vessel before this teacher, bowed and stood. Venerable Michaka asked him, is this my vessel or yours? Vasumitra thought about it and Michaka said if you think it's my vessel it is your intrinsic nature your original nature 
If you think it is your vessel, you will receive my dharma. Hearing this, Vasumitra was greatly awakened concerning the unborn original nature. That's the case. I find it quite challenging to understand what's going on here. This is one of the harder ones, but maybe each one is. Um, so Vasumitra, the, uh, historically speaking, was was a, a philosopher of the Sarvastivada school, uh, a compiler of the Mahavibhasha treatise of the Vibhashaka sub-school of the Sarvastivadin uh, philosophers, who believed that <coughs> the things are made up of of truly existent atoms and time is made up of truly existent moments. Uh, So he's maybe a kind of scholastic philosopher, Vasumitra, but maybe also a kind of crazy wisdom type. Because, you know, what Indian Buddhist philosophers walk around carrying a wine vessel with them? Kind of strange. Apparently he always walked around carrying a wine vessel. And, uh... So, one way of approaching this story uh, could be that the... this wine vessel is symbolic for himself. Vasumitra is a vessel of Dharma, which is a term of that means uh, the Dharma can be poured into him. He's a worthy vessel to pour the Dharma into. A vessel of Dharma is a term used in the Zen tradition. <coughs> and uh, so this vessel he always carries around could be himself, his own body and mind, as a vessel of Dharma. And it's filled with uh, uh, with wine, which could either be um, a, a confusing substance that um, keeps the uh, the vessel uh, kind of confused and intoxicated about his true nature, or it could be the wine of Amrita, the the deathless elixir the the celestial um, sacrament that kind of wine we don't even know if there's wine in it but it's just a wine vessel but maybe we can assume that it's a called a wine vessel because it is filled with with a wine that could be either intoxicating and confusing or could be um a sacramental uh, ambrosia. This is himself, his own vessel. And uh, he placed the wine vessel before this teacher, Michaka. 
he kind of offering it to, to the teacher, it looks like. Then he bowed and stood before the teacher, Michaka, and Michaka asked, is this my vessel or yours? Are you offering your body and mind to me? It could look like that. It could look like this, this, uh, student Vasumitra who always carries this vessel with him when he, he has a sense, this is my true teacher. He gives him the vessel to, to fill. But the teacher asks, well, you've placed it before me. Is it my vessel or is it yours? And Vasumitra thought about this question, couldn't answer. And, uh, Michaka said, if you think it's my vessel, it is actually your originally intrinsic nature, your original nature, which you can't give away because it's not something. You might be able to give away your body and mind to the teacher, but you can't give away your original nature. There's another name for the mind ground. It's it's not yours to begin with. It's not located in your body or in your skull. It's um it's like vast space. You can't uh give away vast space. You can't own vast space either. So the teacher says, if you think it's my vessel that you placed before me, it's actually your original nature. If you think it's your vessel instead, then you will receive my dharma. If you think it's your body and mind, that's not quite right either. It's not your personally owned body and mind vessel. If you think it's yours, then you're going to have to receive my dharma I'm going to pour my dharma into you and you will in a sense become me. This is, uh, this is this dharma transmission. <coughs> Kazan will comment on here. So this is the, this is the, uh, heart of the investigation. This wine vessel, uh, student always has when he when he meets a teacher he finally offers it to the teacher and the teacher says is it mine or yours if you think that it's mine it's actually your original nature and if you think it's yours you are actually going to receive my dharma and become me this original nature this ground of mind is is n- neither belongs to self nor other. It's, it doesn't belong to anyone. <clears throat> so that's the story, and uh, now uh, Kazan will recount some of the um, the life story of the ancestor from the old Chinese. Lamp records. <clears throat> Vasumitra was from northern India of the Bharadvaja family. He always wore clean clothes or pure clothes. Uh, 
and he wandered about in the village carrying a wine vessel. <coughs> so um, maybe like other village drunks, he walked around carrying a wine vessel, but the other village drunks um, didn't keep their clothes clean. But Vasumitra wandered around with a wine vessel, but he had the, always had pure, clean clothes. So there was something unusual about him. He would sometimes sigh or howl. That's the kind of guy he was. Walked around town with a wine vessel. <sighs> oh! <sighs> but he always had clean clothes. People thought he was crazy. He never told anybody his name either. Now, Venerable Michaka, who is the sixth Indian ancestor <laughs> of Zen, <clears throat> was traveling around teaching people, and he arrived in northern India, where he beheld a golden cloud rising up over the wall of the town. Uh, he said to his followers, this is the energy of a great person who will inherit my dharma. Or, this is the aura of a great person. Or, literally, in Chinese it says, qi, the qi of a great person in the form of this cloud. The qi is like the vital energy of a person and um, also means like, breath, so, this translator put it as the aura, the, the energy, but it's appearing, at least it appears to the ancestor Michaka, in the form of a, um, a golden cloud of chi. He sees in the distance, rising up uh, over the wall of the town, and he knows this is the chi, or the, the aura energy, of a Mahasattva, a great person who will inherit my Dharma. He had hardly finished speaking when Vasumitra arrived suddenly. Immediately ran from under the cloud, his own cloud of chi outside the wall of the town and, uh, stood before Michaka. <clears throat> of course he was holding his wine vessel and said, do you know what thing I have in my hand? Does it represent his own body and mind? And uh, Michaka said, it's an impure vessel, not a pure one. So one interpretation would be... Um, it's impure because he calls it a thing. Do you know what kind of thing I'm holding here? And then the teacher says, well, it's an impure vessel because you call it a thing. Maybe because um, you're one of those Sarvastavadins that uh, thinks that things are made of these, are made of these atoms of matter.
instead of really there's nothing actually there. Or he could have said it's impure because uh, um, it was filled with the intoxicating, confusing wine <clears throat> that he'd been carrying around his whole life to this point. So, do you know what thing I have in my hand? And Michaka says, it's an impure vessel, not a pure one. And at that point, Vasumitra placed the wine vessel in front of Michaka and so on. <clears throat> As the story went. Maybe when he heard it's impure, he, uh, he felt like this teacher can, um, reveal something new to me. Therefore, I offer him my, my impure vessel I've been carrying all these years. <coughs> and as the story goes, he be, he was greatly awakened to his unborn original nature. Then the wine vessel suddenly disappeared. It could no longer be seen. That thing he thought was a thing when he awakened to his unborn original nature, it disappeared as a thing. Or that body and mind that he brought to his teacher, that impure body and mind, uh, when his original uh, unborn nature was revealed, this vessel, the body and mind dropped off, it disappeared, it could no longer be seen. Then Venerable Michaka said, Hmm, well, try to tell me your own name, and I will then tell you something about past conditions which brought you to this place. Remember that Vasumitra had never told anybody his name. And then this stranger, this teacher, uh, asks him, Tell me your name, and then I can tell you a lot about you. If you tell me your name that you don't tell to anyone else, tell me who you truly are. And uh, Vasumitra said, For innumerable eons up to my birth in this land, my original name has been Bharadvaja and my given name Vasumitra. <coughs> Vasumitra Bharadvaja. He never told anybody his name up to this point. And, um, but because he revealed his name, his original name to the uh, teacher, the teacher said, my teacher, dear Taka, that was the, uh, fifth ancestor, said that the world honored one, the Buddha, was traveling in northern India and he told his disciple Ananda, 300 years after my death, there will be a holy man, or like a sage in this land whose family name will be Bharadvaja and whose given name will be Vasumitra. And he will become the seventh ancestor of the Zen lineage. Shakyamuni said this to uh, his attendant Ananda. And uh, 
apparently Mishaka knows about this story. There's a lot of these um, in Indian Buddhism, a lot of these um, prophecies and uh, predictions. So this was one of them. And uh, Mishaka tells the story and said, the world honored one made a prediction about you. So um, now you should leave home as a as a Buddhist monk and basically follow out your destiny because it's all predicted by the Buddha 300 years ago. And uh, when Vasumitra heard this, he said, as I reflect on my lives in the past, I remember this. Now that you're telling this story, it's, it's coming clear to me. I'm remembering now that I was once a donor and presented a Tathagata, a Buddha, with a jeweled seat. And when I did that, that Buddha made a prediction about me, saying, you will become an ancestor in the lineage of Shakyamuni Buddha during the fortunate eon, which is our present eon, the Bhadra Kalpa, um, which is, we live in the Bhadra Kalpa, the fortunate eon, and it's fortunate because not only is Shakyamuni Buddha uh, lived in this eon, but uh, a thousand Buddhas live in this eon, this kalpa, this long time period we live in, uh, is a period of a thousand Buddhas, including Shakyamuni Buddha. So this, this, he remembers this life from a past eon where he made an offering to an ancient, ancient Buddha, and that Buddha said, in this fortunate eon in the future, you'll be an ancestor in Shakyamuni Buddha's lineage. So, teacher reminds him of, of this prediction, and then he remembers um, another prediction from his former life. And then, at this point, I think it's like, the destiny is sealed. Well then, okay, shave my head, teacher, I'm leaving home and following you. So, for this reason, he became the seventh ancestor of Zen. That's the story from the old Chinese um, transmission of lamp records that Kazan dusted off and recounted here. Now Kazan will uh, <coughs> will get it's a, and it, here it says Taisho. It's like a Dharma talk. Kazan will give his own commentary uh, to his assembly about this story. And then we're commenting on Kazan's story here, making it alive in the present. So there's layers, there's layers of ancestors um, in this uh, in this old record. Prior to arriving where Venerable Michaka was, the master Vasumitra carried a wine vessel around with him day and night, never letting go of it. In truth, it was a symbol. <clears throat> so he doesn't say what's a symbol of, or it was a, it was a mark or a, uh, a sign of Vasumitra. So that's why I think we, we might look at it as 
it maybe was a literal wine vessel, but maybe it was just, it meant that he carried this body and mind around, this body and mind wine vessel, this vessel of dharma. He carried it day and night, never letting go of it, his body and mind. Uh, Kazan goes on, this vessel was important in the morning and in the evening, and he used it freely, or he received and employed it freely. It's that compound, juyu, as in jijuyu, zamai. Uh, juyu means to receive it, to receive and employ, but as a compound it means to enjoy. When you receive and use something, that is to enjoy it, and it is to fulfill it. So, uh, <clears throat> so Vasumitra received and employed his wine vessel freely, and he enjoyed his wine vessel freely. His body and mind, um, filled with some kind of wine, he, he enjoyed it day and night, but people thought he was crazy. Truly, it represented himself as a vessel. Kazan does say this. The, the, uh, the wine vessel represented himself as a vessel of Dharma. Therefore, at the beginning of his practice, he asked, Do you know what thing I have in my hand? And Kazan says, Even if you realize that the mind is the way, and clarify the fact that the body is the Buddha, it is still an impure vessel. Why is it an impure vessel? (coughs) If uh, Vasumitra um, thought that it was a thing, that his body and mind that he enjoyed was a thing, uh, in that way it's kind of impure, from a Dharma perspective, or if it was, um, he thought it, it was his own personal body and mind that he owned, that's a little bit impure. We don't own these bodies and minds, uh, we. There isn't a self that could own a body and mind. There's just a body and mind happening. There's no, um, there's no owner. It's just a manifestation of, uh, of our unborn original nature, which is the same unborn original nature we all share. If anybody were to own this body and mind, we could say the original unborn nature owns it. But that's very impersonal, because my unborn original nature is the same as your unborn original nature. So... uh Tokyo doesn't own his body and mind. But at times he feels like there's somebody here that does own it, and that's um, a kind of an impure thought. So, Kazan says, even if you realize that mind is the way and clarify the fact that body is Buddha, it's still an impure vessel if we think of it as mind, body and mind. 
In that case, it violates purity. Even if you understand that it existed in the past and the present and realize that it's fundamentally complete even in the future, it nevertheless remains an impure vessel. If we think it's mine or we think it's a thing, what past can you speak of? What present can you speak of? What beginning can you speak of? Or what end? Such views as these necessarily violate purity, Kazan says. Uh, Is this body and mind, did it have a beginning? Does it have an end? Um, Even a present as some kind of thing or some kind of thing that's mine? What beginning and end can we actually speak of? Such views as these necessarily violate purity. (coughs) Hearing the superiority of this principle, Vasumitra put down the vessel, symbolizing his conversion by Michaka, or his refuge in uh, Michaka. It says... Ki as in namu kie butsu, returning to like refuge in in this teacher, uh, Michaka. Michaka asked, "Is this vessel mine or yours?" And Kazan comments, "Since this is already no longer a question of past or present, it has nothing to do with going or coming." At this time, can you ask whether it's mine or yours? So it's not really a thing, this vessel, this body and mind vessel. It's not really a thing. Therefore, it has nothing to do with coming and going. Only things come and go. And it has nothing to do with mine or yours. Only things can be mine or yours. What is this vessel? When... Well, at some point it disappears. As Vasumitra thought about whether it was mine or yours, Michaka said, if you consider it my vessel, it is actually your intrinsic nature, your original nature. Kazan says, thus it's not Michaka's vessel, not the teacher's vessel. And then the teacher says, if it's your vessel, you will receive my dharma. And Kazan said, therefore, it's not Vasumitra's vessel. It's not his own. It's not his teacher's. Since it is neither my vessel nor yours, the vessel is also not a vessel. As a result, the vessel disappeared. Or the vessel was no longer seen. <clears throat> So it doesn't truly belong to the student or the teacher because it's not a thing. A student can feel like they're they're offering their body and mind to the teacher as a practice of kind of surrender. Just tell me how to practice now. 
I surrender to your guidance, a kind of offering a body and mind. Um, such things can happen conventionally, but it's a little bit off if, if the student thinks it. Well, it's my body and mind I'm offering. <clears throat> it's not the teachers or the students. It's not actually a body and mind. And Kazan says, truly, this story makes no sense to people today. <laughs> In case you felt like it makes no sense to you, well, even um, in Kazan's time, in the, in, in the year 1300, um, it made no sense to people either. Though you practice and practice, or though you, uh, it's this word, um, san, as in like dokusan, means, um, um, Meeting with the teacher. San means really like meeting with the teacher. And doku means um, alone. So doku-san is like a, a one-on-one meeting with the teacher. And then we have other kinds of meetings like shosan is a ceremony where it's like a public meeting. Everybody can ask a question and everyone can hear the answers. And sho means small. So it's kind of a abbreviated small kind of meeting with the teacher and uh and sometimes in temples we have chosan it's like morning morning tea discussion and so it's morning meeting with the teacher sometimes in the evening bonsan it's like evening meeting with the teacher so um <clears throat> meeting and uh so we have this term sanzen also that means like meeting a zen a zen meeting with the teacher and dogen says in the zazengi zazen instructions he says sanzen is zazen the zen of meeting the teacher is actually just sitting zazen so here it's this word, um, san, this meeting that is here translated as, uh, <clears throat> though you practice and practice. So you could say, though you, um, though you meet, or in, another translation is inquire, inquiring with the teacher. Though you inquire, inquire, practice and practice, meet and meet, and arrive at the place where not even Buddhas and ancestral teachers can reach, this still must be an impure vessel and necessarily violates purity. <coughs> so to think of that this um, body and mind is something, or that um, it's mine or yours, um, if we practice and practice inquiry, inquire and meet and meet in this way, and even arrive at the place where not even Buddhas and ancestors can reach, still, it may be an impure vessel that violates purity. If we think that I'm practicing and I'm meeting the teacher and I'm inquiring, one who is truly a pure person does not establish purity 
and for that reason also does not establish a vessel. A, a pure person does not um, set up even purity, establish or um, create like my purity or the purity of something. And uh, for that reason, uh, a pure person does not establish a vessel, establish a personal body and mind, we might say. The paths of teacher and disciple merge or coincide because there's no obstacle on the path. You will receive my dharma because it is your original nature. That's a nice commentary on this transmission of light that's celebrated throughout this text. You will receive my dharma because it is your original nature. It's not that I'm giving you my original nature. It's your original nature. And um, when you open to your original nature, that is receiving my dharma, Kezan is saying. Not one thing is received from someone else and not one thing is given to another. When you get to the bottom of this matter in this way, then you can speak of, quote, teacher and, quote, disciple. We can loosely speak of so-called teacher and so-called disciple when we get to the bottom of the matter where uh, nothing is received from someone else or given to someone else. Then we can talk about a teacher... Uh, transmitting dharma to a disciple. Therefore, the disciple rises up to the teacher's head and the teacher descends to the disciple's feet. This is a, a way of trying to describe this relationship of unity of uh, of merging. <clears throat> ah. In one of the commentaries on the on this transmission of light record, it says this whole record is just about um, <clears throat> verification and merging, or showcase. Uh, which um, maybe originally comes from uh, Ru Jing's transmission of Dharma to uh, Dogen Zenji. And it came along with a document. And this document is, um, is available um, on the internet, for example. You can Google Dogen's transmission document and you can see photos of it. So it's not... Um, hidden, <clears throat> and it says, and then, and Dogen talks about it in his, also in his, um, he has a whole essay on this transmission document, and it says, uh, Ru Jing wrote on the document, Buddhas and ancestors, life vain, verified, merged. 
So this verified merge, show K, uh, <clears throat> is what some say this whole transmission of light is about. Is about this verification and merging, um, teacher and student together verifying reality and merging. It says coincide here. Um, merging is maybe a, is an intriguing word. Teacher and disciple merge and the, um, <clears throat> the reality of Buddhas and ancestors is verified is verified by teacher and student, and teacher and student merge. Shoke. <coughs> so, um, <clears throat> the paths of teacher and disciple merge because there's no obstacle on the path. That's uh, the time they merge is when there's no obstacle. For example, the obstacle of like self and other being separate. Therefore, the disciple climbs over the teacher's head would be another way to say it. And the teacher um, comes down to the disciple's feet. So usually we think of the disciple at the teacher's feet, but uh, they're merged at this point. At this time, there are not two things. There's no duality or separation. This is what we mean by verified, merged, or verification of merging. Therefore, it is difficult to speak of a vessel. The vessel has disappeared <clears throat> and uh looks like this this translation by Cook is missing a sentence where it says this is penetrating the way <clears throat> and then um <clears throat> then uh Kazan says, today, too, if you can reach this realm, there is no former body and mind. It is therefore difficult to speak of existing in the past or present. This is kind of summing up this commentary. There is no former body and mind, the kind that we maybe thought was our own. Therefore, it's difficult to speak of existing like I existed in the past or even I exist in the present. How much less can you speak of birth and death or going and coming? Yes, there's the appearance of birth and death coming and going for appearing bodies, but uh, but the question is, do I and you, are in our original, uh, original unborn nature, is that a realm of dying? We can't, we can't discern any um, moment when this original unborn nature 
was born. If it was, it wouldn't be the unborn nature. And it's called the unborn nature because we can't find any time when it arose. We're talking here about um, this ordinary, ordinary mind, this um, uh, ground that's just um, ever-present knowing awareness. Not mine or yours. Before before the thought, mine and yours, arises, there's just present knowing awareness. Doesn't seem to have a beginning. Doesn't seem to come and go. Doesn't seem to have a location. And yet, it's not nothing either. And the main point why these ancestors keep harping on this original unborn nature is that um, because we want to be happy. We want to be free and at ease. And um, there's many ways to describe this path to freedom in, in the Buddha Dharma, but this is the one that... Um, Zen ancestors, but particularly Kazan, is often trying to um, open us to, open us to the to this realm that is always already free and, in a way, happy. Not happy as a kind of the human emotion, but um, not unhappy, incapable of unhappiness, because it's just um, present and aware of experience. And unhappy is an experience. The experiencing of unhappiness is not itself unhappy. This is the key point. There can be unhappiness for a person, but stepping back into the just ordinary, spacious knowing that ordinary spacious knowing is not unhappy. It's just, it's just, uh, knowing unhappiness. Is this a trick? Is this a Zen trick? <laughs> no, we can really, this is our, our job this week is to tease apart what we call experience, like, like unhappiness or sound of shredding trees or whatever kind of experience that arises and ceases at a particular time and place to tease that apart from the space, this knowing space in which the experience is happening. Discerning carefully in this way. And... uh at this time, Kazan says, there are, is no duality, no separation. Therefore, it's difficult to speak of a vessel. The vessel has disappeared. This is penetrating or pervading the way, the great way. Today, too, if you can reach this realm, there is no former body and mind. It's therefore difficult to speak of existing in the past or present. How much less can you speak of birth and death, going and coming? How can you 
keep skin, flesh, bones, and marrow? Or how can skin, flesh, bones, and marrow truly exist? Like this body, all these layers of body. Yes, it's appearing, but um, from the point of view of the original unborn nature, um, how can how can you keep skin, flesh, bones, and marrow? It's a realm where sky congeals into a single mass, or where <clears throat> space congeals into empty solidity, or it's a single piece of chimeric absorption. This is maybe a hard one to translate. Is it chimera? Does anyone know what that means? It's a composite mythical beast. A a composite mythical beast. The tail of the snake and the body of the lion. (coughs) What a, what a strange translation. (laughs) Ah, this is, uh, Griffith Folk. It's a, it's a, um, it's a single piece of chimeric absorption. <laughs> it's a realm where uh, space congeals into a single mass. How about that one? It's a realm, what we're talking about here is a realm where space congeals into one reality. Trying to hint at this. It is space. Space congealed into one single reality, not divided into um, myriad people and floorboards and bells and drums. Just congealed into a single piece. Something that appears to be compounded at all these things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think there's something biological also. There's some kind of it's a modern term in maybe biology or medicine combined. Oh, okay. I guess that's one. Um, like people, like like two twins, or fraternal twins, or something. Like I figured that it was, but they like combine, like somehow their DNA gets combined or something. Oh. Like, yeah, and they both end up having each other's, some of each other's DNA. Oh. Well, that might make more sense. A single piece of absorption in shared DNA. And swallows us up and spits us out. What's that? What's in the what's in the vessel? Yeah. Are there any dregs left in the bottom of the vessel? It's a realm where the sky 
congeals into a single mass, admitting neither front nor back, neither inside nor outside. That's kind of single mass. <clears throat> Unity, there's a lot of emphasis, um, maybe Kazan Zen especially, is a lot of emphasis on oneness or unity. And maybe Dogen Zen is maybe more emphasis on multiplicity. And both are two sides of um, one space. <clears throat> so... Um, Kazan's trying to express this and he ends with this verse. Today I want to take up this story and add a humble verse. Do you want to hear it? His verse is, Just as an echo follows when a bell sounds on a frosty morning, so here from the first there is no need for an empty cup. It's hard. Why would he write such a verse? Um, <clears throat> if the frosty dawn bell reverberates following each strike, then within it from the start there is no need of an empty cup. So um, this is open to interpretation here. Uh, but we have um, the story of a wine vessel that's actually um, starts off impure and then when it's purified it disappears it's, it seems to be empty an empty wine vessel <clears throat> and uh, and then we have this bell that struck that could be like a um, an upside down vessel an empty, an empty vessel, but when it's struck on a frosty morning, this echo reverberates from the bell. There's nothing actually in the bell, but it, it echoes and reverberates, um, so everyone can hear it. <coughs> so here from the first, there is no need for an empty cup. If the vessel is like a body, the uh, the body produces these empty echoes, like when it's speaking these words coming out of the body, like empty echoes, um, which is just fine. There's no need to think of body, the body as a nihilistic nothingness. It doesn't need to completely disappear. It's just that whatever comes out of the body vessel is um, like echoes, ungraspable echoes, but that still can be heard. Maybe something like this. Just as an echo follows when a bell sounds on a frosty morning, so here from the first, there's no need for an empty cup uh, a completely non-reverberating cup. <clears throat> this is hard to know what Kazan uh, is referring to here. And um, compared to most of the other verses, 
I think it's an especially hard verse, and I think it's an especially hard story about this neither mine nor yours vessel. <coughs> Do you have um, thoughts or comments or questions about today's story? Anybody online um, have anything you'd like to bring up? I think it gets easier from here. This was one of the hard ones, I think. They're all, they're all the Indian ancestor stories have a certain kind of flavor that's kind of obscure and maybe it's the way that the, that the Chinese, if the Chinese came up with these stories, when they're thinking about the Indian ancestors, they're especially strange. It's like this mystical land of India. And the Chinese stories are a little bit more like, they're also strange, but they're more like down to earth. The Indian stories have a lot of magic and like walking around with wine vessels that disappear and things like this. <clears throat> but they're all about meetings. And so maybe we could sum up um, this meeting uh, as uh, when teacher and student meet uh, there is no body and mind that belongs to self or other. <clears throat> and if we think that there's, it's really me over here and you over there, there's a kind of impurity there that needs to be um, released. The nice thing about practicing together in Sashin is that we, um, it seems like there's a group of different people, so we can, and, and it will continue to seem that way, but at the same time, we can, um, as we sit together day after day, we can, um, maybe sense that we're, that we're, uh, we're moving through the day as kind of like one body. And that's, I think, also why we do things like this orioki eating and, uh, and we do rituals and ceremonies together that, um, where we, we just, we do it together. Right? We do it together so we, so the feeling is less and less like, I'm doing this thing over there and you're doing that thing over there. It's, um, by doing it together, uh, there's more and more sense of um, merging and verification of merging. Yes? So I'm kind of wondering why it's wine and not, say, water. Yeah. Carrying around a water jar. Yeah, yeah. Is it... Is it poking at our ideas of that somehow preluded to monks? Why would a monk be carrying wine around and offering it to his teacher? Yeah, yeah. Well, he wasn't a monk at that point. He was kind of a, 
crazy wisdom character, or maybe he was Vasumitra, the uh, the scholar who also was kind of a crazy wisdom scholar. Yeah, why was it why wine vessel? And if the, when they say uh, when the teacher says um, it's impure, is that something to do something to do with this wine that um, has more connotation of like? It can be this uh, intoxicating, confusing um, substance, or it can be a um, a sacrament. At least in the in the Western world, wine is a sacrament, right? It's a um, it's a um, celebratory sacrament of life, celebrating life. So, um, of course, they didn't know about that kind of uh, Christian idea in those days. But um, maybe even in those days, there was some sense that um, it's um, it's uh, it's joyful spirits in the vessel. Do you think it was pond? Perhaps with other medicinal uh, pond? Yeah, I imagine. Like betel nut? No pond. Oh, like bong, bong. Could be. Could be. It says wine vessel, but, um, uh, who knows what that was in ancient India? Yeah, yeah. Um, he always carried it everywhere, and he um, received and employed it uh, freely. <laughs> he enjoyed he enjoyed his wine vessel freely, and um, <clears throat> but. It, According to his teacher, at first it was impure. He, he may have been an agori. You know the agoris? Uh, they're this Indian, really, maybe the original crazy wisdom characters there. Um, agori means something like um, fearsome. So like they venture into the m- most fearsome realms, just and just out there as possible um, to kind of like test their uh, sense of um, the human realm, maybe. <laughs> so they, yeah, they, they drink wine out of human skulls and so on. And still, the, and this is the basis for ta- tantric. Part of the basis for these higher, higher tantras of Hinduism and Buddhism is kind of like, um, pushing the limits of normality, we might say. And, uh, this story is maybe in that spirit. There's something about pushing the limits of normality in a little bit of a tame way, but something, something in there. This crazy guy who never told anybody his name. Everyone thought he was crazy too. 
And he just walked around with this wine vessel day and night. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know what an Indian wine vessel looked like. Um, I, I, I was picturing kind of like a jar with a handle, um, maybe like a jug, but um, I don't know. Or maybe it looked like Vasumitra's um, body, and he was—he um, had these really clean white clothes that were always clean, but he also had these like dreadlocks that were 10 feet long that dragged on the ground behind him. That's his, that's his vessel. <laughs> we can imagine this in many different ways. Uh, yes, uh, Eric. <coughs> oh, can you uh, unmute yourself? Let's see if we can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes, you can. I want to say another definition of chimera is an illusion or fabrication of the mind. Oh, okay. That fits maybe most most uh, appropriately here. Thanks. An illusion or fabrication of the mind. Yeah, which is, of course, related to these mythical creatures. Um <clears throat> Where was that? Um, uh, a single piece of chimeric absorption. A single piece of um, absorption um, in illusion while free from illusion. So um, maybe just to, uh, from, from that thought, uh, to mention this, uh, in, I think, Indian way of talking about, um, the meditation practice is, um, is to, um, be like space. Be like pure, open space with no edges or boundaries and no coming and going. Uh, on the cushion, formal meditation to be like space. And then in post meditation, so that would be like, you know, kinhin and orioki meals and breaks. Sometimes it's spoken of as in a retreat, you have post meditation time when you're not um, absorbed in being space and you have to walk around. And in that case, um, uh, move about as if you're in a dream. So these two metaphors are kind of nice for these two aspects of practice. On the cushion one, we don't have to do anything. We don't have to think of anything at all, necessarily. We can just be like space. But when we have to get up from the cushion and engage in what appears to be these activities, we can do so as if we're doing it in a dream. Because um, just to be like space, we'd maybe bump into walls and stuff. But uh, it keeps the meditation go- going off the cushion in the post-meditation, outside of absorption um, and, and just pure presence. Then like a dream or like an illusory, illusory um, 
realm, and then in zazen um, being like space. So this is a high standard, of course, but it's a it's a great image for sashin. I think all day long we can alternate between being space and being in a dream, back and forth, and back and forth. Yes. Uh, but isn't like at least from the Indian point of view, when Buddha had originally taught that, aren't these the formless jhanas then? And wouldn't that be like very hard to achieve for like most people? Formless jhanas are the, like particular states, right? Meditation states, and um, so sometimes they sound very similar to what the Zen ancestors are talking about. Uh, <clears throat> but I would understand that the um, Zen ancestors are not recommending these kind of gradations of um, mental states like the jhanas, even though the word Zen is Japanese for jhana. Um, when the ancestors comment on that, they say, we don't mean those, the list of the, of the four form jhanas and the four formless jhanas. Um, we mean just being like space. There is, maybe you, you, you bring it up because there's, there's a formless jhana called infinite space. Is that what made you think of it? Yeah. 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 So that's true. There is a, there's a, a meditation state called infinite space and a meditation state called infinite consciousness. And so they sound very similar to what we're talking about here. And maybe we shouldn't say that they're truly different, but, um, the Zen style is, is not to, um, make a system out of it, of a graded system of, um, based on the four form jhanas, then going deeper, there's the four formless jhanas. This would be like, right from the beginning, um, be like space. So you're right. If we talk of them as these, these, these grades or progressive, um, absorption in these meditative states, then maybe very hard. Yeah. But if we say, um, just open to how our ordinary mind, since then we use terms like ordinary mind, our ordinary mind, not our thinking mind, but our ordinary ground of mind, the present open awareness is already like space for all of us already. So we're just, um, we're opening to without stopping our thinking. It's nice if our thinking settles down a little bit, but right there behind the thinking, the ground of the thinking from which all thoughts emerge is um, this space-like presence, and we're just opening into it. So it's a little different than these jhanas because it's not a, um, it's not a meditation state in this case. It's the ground of all states. But the names are very similar. So, so, um, and maybe some people would say, "Yeah, no, we're talking about the same thing." But uh, the entry gate in Zen is always like, um, without going through a lot of preliminary um, practices, just um, with deep devotion and trust that this is possible, because it's trust in our own Buddha nature, we just ask, am I aware right now? And we check, 
don't assume, but check. Yes, this is awareness right now. And um, I just wasn't paying attention to it because I was um, involved in my mental states in particular experiences. They're still going on, but now I'm becoming more interested in the um, in the space in which these states are happening. So um, that's a, more like the Zen style. Dawn. Yes. Uh, I had a question about the back to the meaning and the references to uh, the vessel being impure. Um, and the question that was put out, could, could it also be a reference to like asking, are you coming with attachments or are we able to meet without reference? Yes. Like, Two arrows in midair. Yes, yes. So maybe even that um, it's not really an impure vessel, but the the, the teacher's asking um, or maybe testing. This is an impure vessel, and if the um, if uh, if the student got defensive and said, um, "No, it's not," <laughs> uh, then um, that would be something then to work with. So, yes, uh, as you say, are you coming with any attachments? Um, this is an impure vessel. Okay, um, well, what next? I'm ready for what next. And uh, that's the unattached readiness. Thank you. Thank you.